You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that borrows your favorite books and draws wieners in the margins. I'm Megan. I'm RJ the Third. What happened to RJ Jr. Part 2, the sequel? You know what you did to him. <laughs> Nothing? Keep telling that to the cops. They don't believe you. I definitely didn't sacrifice him in a ritual to get the my brother, my brother, and me Jumbotron slot. Way to be timely. If I be throwing a Kellyanne Conway joke, Meg, by the time this comes out, it'll be so timely. Keep that out. There's going to be RJ4. <laughs> I peak at RJ5. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then at RJ6, is just downhill from there. Maybe. And then until we get to RJ7, The Force Awakens. Mm. So we've done a lot of classic literature that is a bummer, you know? Okay. No, you, you have no thoughts on that. Uh, I think we've done well. I'm just saying, there's a lot, a lot of classic literature is just sort of very depressing. I and, disagree. Okay. Well, what do, you, what do you have to argue with? Literature. It's fun. I'm talking about what we've covered on the show, of which you remember nothing. What book was our last episode on? Lord of the Flies. Oh, wow. Okay, you were ready. One before that? (laughs) (laughs) Um. I'm going to leave this pause in. (laughs) The Invisible Man. No. That was like four episodes. No, no, no. The one before it was... uh... (laughs) The one that the chick puts the hand in her mouth. Yes, yeah. the one where the chick puts the hand in her mouth, a.k.a. Titus Andronicus. Um, yeah, Christopher Titus. Yes. And the Avengers. Yeah, no, Ralph Ellison was before even our Christmas episode. Christopher Titus, the androgynous, <laughs> was pretty funny. I guess, but yeah. it, was, it was pretty brutal. And um, That doesn't mean sad. The beginning of this year has been pretty brutal, so let's, let's lighten things up. Let's do something fun. Let's do a good old, wild, old-timey, swashbuckling adventure in France. Okay. You don't sound super excited about the swashbuckling adventure we're about to go on. Nope. I'm going to need a little more... I hate you. Excuse me. Today we're going to be talking about the Three Musketeers. Possibly the the swashbuckliest novel to ever swash and or buckle it's just really fun to say you know without actual pirates in it anyway did you have to read this one in school nope i read the candy bar wrapper yeah yep i've also had the sandwich of his other book yeah we're not talking about that one yet he he wrote about a lot of food he was a lot of food well he was if you look at the pictures he was a big dude oh we're gonna cover this okay then i'll i'll save that I didn't actually didn't have to read it in school either. I read that one on my own for funsies because Nerd. you're the co-host of a podcast about literature. Weren't getting laid, were look you? In, look in the mirror, why don't you? Because I remember seeing the movie, which has like Kiefer Sutherland and little, little baby Chris O'Donnell and uh, pre-drugs Charlie Sheen. And they're just having wacky sword adventures. And I'm like, I'm going to read that book. And it wasn't until revisiting the book 
for this episode that I realized I had read like some kind of abridged ass for younger readers Three Musketeers that left out about as much plot as the movies do. So that was a fun discovery and I'm gonna share it all with you guys because I would imagine this isn't assigned too much in in school. I don't know. Or I could be completely fucking wrong. Neither of us had to read it in school, and that is the current scope of our life experience. Very true. Yep. But before we can get to uh, those very French men and their very fine swords, let's learn about the very French man who wrote about them. RJ, can you tell us about Alexandre Dumas? Oh, he wasn't born that. Oh, well, you you tell us what he's born as. Also, just before you get started, because I know it's going to happen... If you thought that we fuck up names and pronunciations bad before, there's gotta be so much French and we're gonna screw it all up. So oh, oh, let's get started. Here. Enjoy. <laughs> so this gentleman was born Dumas Davy de la Pagetteri. Later on, he changed his name to Alexander Dumas, which is much easier. But he went by Alexander Dumas Père. For my English-speaking friends out there, it roughly translates to Daddy Dumas. Is there a reason he went by Papa Dumas? Uh, we'll talk about this. Oh, God. So, Daddy Dumas was the third child of three. Did he actually, or did you? are you just saying that so you get to call him that the whole time? I, I got AKA, Alexander Dumas Père. I don't believe you, but okay. Uh, where would I come up with a French word? <laughs> you know what? That's fair. <laughs> That's a fair point. So, Daddy Dumas was the third child of three. Before him, his parents had two daughters, Marie Alexandrine. Alexandrine. And Luis Alexandrine. As you can see, the family was big on Alex's. As you might assume, Father Daddy Dumas was Thomas Alexander Dumas. Originality being the ultimate key, as always. And Mommy Daddy Dumas was Marie Louis Elizabeth Labore. Dumas. Oh, she's the mommy of Daddy Dumas. The mommy Daddy Dumas. Yeah. I'm already confused. Mom was the daughter of an innkeeper and father was a general in the French army. Actually, father of Daddy Dumas has a pretty cool biography. He was born in what's present day Haiti and became the highest ranking man of African descent in any European army ever. Like, even since him. Wow. He rose to the position of general in chief. And he rose to notoriety during the French Revolutionary War. He was actually one of Napoleon Bonaparte's most trusted and weaned upon compatriots. In fact, Napoleon named him the Horatus Cockles of Tyrol. Turn the turn the <laughs> turn the computer. Turn turn it around. There's no fucking with it. The Horatius Horatius Hor, 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 Yeah, that's like Horatius Cockles of the Tyrol. Oh no, God! All right, Google, just Google it. Just go, there's no fucking way we're going to get that right. Napoleon nicknamed him the Horatius Cockles of Tyrol, which basically means Napoleon likened him to some really famous Roman guy who single-handedly saved Rome from a complete invasion. Oh, okay. That's, yeah. All right. Cool. So back to the focus of the story, Mr. Daddy Dumas. I don't want to. His, his granddad's way cooler. No, that's not his granddad. That's his dad. Oh, that was his dad? Yeah. Oh, I thought he was a Daddy Dumas. Daddy Dumas. Father See, he, of Daddy Dumas. This is too confused. <laughs> All right, so his dad was an amazing fucking war hero. Yep. During the French Revolutionary War, he was one of Napoleon's right-hand men. Go him. Yep. So, back to Daddy. Mm. He was born in hmm, some city in France. Oh, you're not even going to try? <laughs> Let me see. 
Oh God, Vie Cotere. He was born in Vie Cotere, France. Sure. Which is about fifty miles northeast of Paris. That one we can say. Now, when Daddy was a wee lad of four, his father, the great general, died of cancer. Rip, you hero. His mom did not handle the situation all that well, and the family fell onto hard financial times. This meant that the family could not afford to send Daddy to school. Instead, he had to teach himself everything he knew. The way of the streets. The way of the French language. And hell, for good measure, he also taught himself Spanish. Why not, you know, while you're doing all the other stuff? And even though the family was poor, everybody knew who the father was. And so that kind of helped the family out. In fact, after the monarchy was reinstated in 1822, when Daddy was 20, he it's, moved... It's just awful hearing you say that over and over again. Like, it hurt. It hurts Daddy. every time. Do you want me to call him Alex? Alexander? <laughs> you you just do what you do. Well, he's Daddy to me. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to kink shame you. But, so, when the monarchy was reinstated in 1822, when Alexander was 20, he moved to Paris and was given a royal position within the monarchy because of who his dad was. During this time... Alexander began to write on a regular basis. He wrote articles for magazines, and he actually began to break into playwriting for the theater. As he began to publish, he changed his name to Alexander Dumas, so he was no longer Davy. He took on the last name Dumas, which was his slave grandmother's name, and that's also what his father had done around the same time in his life. The first play he successfully published was Henry III and His Courts, which he did when he was 27 years old. It was a smash. He followed that up with another play that was just as successful named Christine the very next year. The back-to-back successes were what allowed him to focus on writing full-time as they provided plenty of income for him. Now, this being French, or not French and all. This (laughs) This being French. (laughs) This being France and all, there was always some sort of revolution hanging around the corner. In 1830, when Alexander was 28 and now a big-time writer, he participated in the revolution that ousted Charles X and got the Duke of Orleans, Louis-Philippe, later dubbed the Citizen King, onto the throne. This was Alexander's former boss, so his help really shouldn't come as much of a surprise. It took a while for life to return to normal, but as France worked through the issues, the Industrial Revolution was beginning to take hold, and more importantly for this tale, press censorship began to fall to the wayside. This allowed Alexander to be freer in what he wrote, which helped him continue his success. After a string of successful plays, Alexander took his talents to novel writing, where he was nearly just as successful. It turns out, Daddy was rather charismatic and quite the marketer. He generally published his work in weekly serials, which is when a small part of a novel is published in either a weekly or bi-weekly periodical. Yeah, we talked about this. Oh, we don't know if everyone listens to every episode. Okay, well, it was like like what Charles Dickens was doing with his books, where every week you'd show up to see what those wacky characters were up to now. Realizing the potential to make buku bucks, Alexander put a whole team together. Like, I'm talking hundreds of people that were focused on turning out content that he oversaw and helped edit and sold using his name and fame. Things were going pretty well for Alexander. Wait, so, so was he like a 19th century French BuzzFeed? Kind of. Huh. But he put his name on everything. Right. And some people question how much of, for example, Three Musketeers or the Count of Monte Cristo was him versus him having ghostwriters and then him editing it and putting it out in his name. It went through him. He edited it, but right. maybe he didn't write the first go. It's like a John Grisham, Grisham situation. Daniel Steele. Yeah. I and mean, we'll see why. 
there is a time suck on his life, literally. Gross. Things were going well for Alexander. He was popular. He was making money. He was living a pretty lavish lifestyle. In 1840, when he was 38 years old, he married an actress by the name of Ida Ferrier, who is nine years his junior. All of this success, however, began to get to Alexander. Despite making big money, he was always seemingly cash poor. He was also heavily leveraged and thus always was in some kind of debt. He had a thirst for lavish parties, the finest of things, and oh yeah, women. When I looked this up, this was just shocking to me. I mean, do you want to say the number? Gonna get there. Okay. So while Ida (laughs) was the only woman Alexander ever married, he was known to have quite the number of affairs in his day. In fact, it's said that he had as many as 40 mistresses throughout his life. 40 mistresses! His face looks like a butt! So this is where the name Daddy probably came in. More than likely. You see, Daddy daddied three kids with Ida, but he's also said to have had at least four children out of wedlock, as far as we know. Oh, boy. The thing is, Daddy didn't even try to hide the affairs. (laughs) He went for famous women, in particular actresses, writers, and other women in the public eye. The most well-known was probably Ada Isaacs Mencken, who was an American actress that was the highest-earning actress during her lifetime. She took a tour through France performing hit show after hit show. And at every step of the way, Daddy was there posing for pictures with her. This would be like some dude shacking up with J-Law or Emma Stone and hitting up the club with them every single night while having his baby mommy at home. J-Law, really? She's the highest earning actress with Emma Stone in the last few years. I don't look it up. So that would be the equivalent. I can't believe you looked it up just to make that. I gotta be true. I don't get <laughs> fake news unlike Megan. You say fake shit on the show literally all the time. Speaking of news, this brings me to my first installment of... What? Philandering with RJ. Oh, no. No. We're not giving people philandering advice. Hello, you unfaithful little boys and girls. Oh, Jesus. So you sinners in the eyes of the flying spaghetti monster hear Daddy Dumas' story and you feel inspired? Envious? The flying spaghetti monster? Like you want to live that life too? Well, I'm here to help you learn to philander with the best of them. No. In for an inch, in for the ejaculation. Gross. That's that's what Gammy always said. Gammy, no. Don't hold back now. (laughs) Gammy, why? If you want to be good at this, you got to make sure you bring some pleasure. It's true. You're not going to be a very good philanderer if you're bad at the sex. If your name is good on the streets, that you're good in the sheets... Your job's going to be way easier. Plus, to be honest, Daddy Dumas was no looker. Not even a little. Dude is like a 300-pound Einstein of Haitian descent. See, I was going to say he looked like a fat black Mark Twain. No, no, he looks like (laughs) Einstein. He has so many different bad hairstyles. If you look up pictures of him, he has not just... Like, he has an Albert Einstein one. He has another one that makes him look like Bozo the Clown. He has what looks like some kind of neck cyst going on. He was a very unattractive man who just fucked an unfathomable amount of women. Unfortunately, all good things come to an end. I'm not exactly sure when it became too much, but I would venture to guess somewhere between number 36 and 37. Despite his financial struggles, he had friends in the right places to help keep him propped up and remain generally successful. That was, at least, until you guessed it, another revolution. Oh, France. Daddy's buddy in the throne was tossed into the streets, and the new guy who took over didn't really like Daddy since Daddy was a friend of the last guy. Politics. Uh. 
Daddy, seeing the writing on the wall between all the philandering, which I guess gives you a lot of time to admire ceilings and walls, knew... <laughs> knew he needed to get out of town to escape his creditors and political enemies. So he did the one thing no other Frenchman ever could. Uh-huh. He invaded... Er, moved to Russia. <laughs> now, Russians loved the guy. He successfully published there. He also wrote travel books about his great new homeland. In 1859, Dumas was 57, and he was rubbing elbows with the Russian elite, whose language of choice was French. Well, maybe right after Russian, but... I mean, it's the same thing. Se- second place. Well, no, well, I mean, it was the same thing in England. Like, the aristocracy spoke French forever, like, That's everywhere. That's true. That is a thing. It so, was the language of the fancy. As uh, Daddy grew into old age, his popularity began to wane. After a few years in Russia, maybe deciding Siberia was kind of cold, he moved to Italy to found a newspaper and write about and catalog the Italian unification efforts. In 1870, he died at the age of 68. It isn't noted that he had any particular disease, so it's likely he succumbed to some mix of obesity and literally fucking the life essence out of his own body into all his lady friends. Probably several STDs as well. A death by Snoo Snoo. <laughs> his death was not noted in France when he passed, but that's kind of understandable as, you guessed it, they were in the middle of another war. For God's sake! And now it was the Franco-Prussian War. Ah. He was buried in his hometown without much fanfare. One final thing I need to mention if you haven't picked up on the subtle clues. Daddy Dumas was black, or at least of mixed ancestry, and presented as such. Because of it, and it being the 19th century, dude faced a lot of racism. He did have one of the best burns ever, though. In response to one critic who criticized Daddy for being black, Daddy said, My father was a mulatto, my grandfather was a negro, and my great-grandfather a monkey. You see, sir, my family starts where yours ends. Oh, sick burn. Pimp as shit. The end. Damn right. But yeah, you get these weird, especially like older, like old timey kind of portraits where he just looks like a straight up white dude. Like they have these, what's the word? Daguerreotype? Yeah. They're daguerreotypes and you can see that, yeah, he's a dude of, of like mixed race. But then, yeah, you have these portraits where he's just pale as a ghost. And I don't know if that was like France's attempt to whitewash one of their most famous writers and be like, oh, if everybody loves him, maybe we could convince him he was white. I have no idea. I don't know. I have no basis or grounding for any of that. It's just if you look at paintings of him versus actual pictures of him, there's a big disparity. (laughs) I think also, you know, again, speaking of the aristocracy, which he was a part of, they all wore the white wigs and the puffy powder (laughs) on their face. And so I'm sure he powdered it up too. I have, before we uh, continue on, I have one very serious question for you. Okay. Do you think he ever collectively referred to his junk as the Three Musketeers? That wouldn't make sense. He has one dick, as far as I know. Yeah, but one dick and two balls. The Three Musketeers. So, a note about the candy bar, just so we can get this shit settled. Delicious. Uh, One of my favorites. You know, Halloween, (laughs) when I was a kid, Three Musketeers was like number one. Like, when I was looking through the bag, yeah, I really like Musketeers. Yeah, because the ones that have the caramel and the nuts, they all kind of run together. Like, a Milky Way and a Snickers, it's the same fucking bar. I don't think a Milky Way has nuts in it. 
Well, that's the difference. Ah. Secret says nuts, the other one doesn't. But they both have caramel, and they're pretty similar, and they kind of look similar unless you look at the wrapper. Now, Payday I liked also. They get the whole chocolate out of there. Just nuts and caramel. That's, that's awful, and you're a monster? Payday. No human being enjoy Payday is like a, getting a fucking like, visit to the dentist. Now what, I like about, now, now, what I like to do with the Three Musketeers is usually I would eat what would be the bottom, and you kind of like nibble it off like a hamster, and then you eat the nougat middle, and that leaves you with the shell, and then you eat the shell. You're an animal masquerading as a man. Oh, it's very fun and very <laughs> delicious. A deconstructed Three Musketeers. I would buy, <laughs> if I could, vests. <laughs> Of whatever they put in the middle there. Oh my god, that's awful. So why is it called a Three Musketeers bar? Three ingredients. Because No, not three ingredients. And not because there's a chapter where like Athos is like, shit man, you know what I love more than like being a musketeer? Fuck, needs, fucking nougat. Need some energy, bro. Nougat's my fave. No, it's because the candy bar was actually originally sectioned to be split three ways between you and your own personal Aramis and Porthos. That's pretty good. Fuck D'Artagnan. No candy for him. Yeah. That's why it's called Three Musketeers Bar. There you go. Those three musket-toting and tearing and what-have-you Frenchmen are nigh-fucking-ubiquitous. Even if you haven't read the book, which I imagine most people haven't, you know the fucking Three Musketeers. And why? Is it the sexy swashbuckling? The steamy romance and backstabbing? The 67 chapters? There's fucking 67 chapters of this book. Oh, he missed it by two. (laughs) I know. Well, actually, no. Wait. There's 67 chapters... And a preface and an epilogue. There you go. Yes! 69 <laughs> made it hit the sex number. Anyway, which makes more sense when you think about it in the context of that he was releasing it in a serialized format. But when you're tackling it all together, mm, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thick motherfucker. It's pr- Just awesome. like him. It's, it's as thick as Dumas himself. So let's get things started with the previously mentioned preface. The author's preface serves as the totally unnecessary, but extremely common framing device of this is a real and true story that I found archived in a library or an attic or some shit. Several Ono Lit Class alums are guilty of this as well, like uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne for one, and I have no idea why. Like, did anyone reading it actually go like, I wasn't going to read it before, but now that I know it's a true story, well, that changes everything. It does. That's a, a lot of them did that because they it, all did that. That's what I'm saying. It was a thing. Yes, it makes it realer, better, I, I guess truer. They do it in movies. I was, still. Uh, I was gonna say we we do have found footage movies still today, so I guess people are just stupid. Anyway, after that thing, we can get started with the real action. Learning about D'Artagnan and his terrible horse. Here's what you need to know about D'Artagnan. He's 18. He's off on his first adventure in the big wide world. And he's ready to fight literally everyone in it. Here's what you need to know about D'Artagnan's horse. It's old, it's ugly, and it can't even fucking walk right. D'Artagnan's dad is basically like, Hey son, you're of a mannish age. Here's 20 bucks, our awful horse, and a letter for a dude named Monsieur Treville, who's the head of the musketeers that says, Hi, this is my son D'Artagnan. Be nice to him. Now get your ass out of here, and remember, don't be afraid to pick a fight with anyone, even if they're bigger and stronger than you. And there's significantly more of them. And they're way better at fighting. And they also already beat you up once before. G.I. Joe. (laughs) Do it anyway. Do not question my dadly wisdom. 
And D'Artagnan does not question this. In fact, he almost immediately gets into a fight with some guys at an inn after they make fun of his ugly, horrible horse. And it's real bad because, like, the dude who made fun of Dart's horse is super chill and just like, oh, come on, get over it. Like, your horse is dumb and you know it. And Dumas makes a point of saying that Dart had this, like, super eloquent retort planned in his head, but instead it comes out as like, fuck you, you mean guy. I'm gonna stab you in the dick. Except he doesn't. Not even a little. Instead, the stranger and his buddies just grab whatever bullshit happens to be lying around. Shovels, tongs, sticks, and such. And they just beat the ever-loving hell out of him. And then when they finish, he's just like, Is that all you got? Don't walk away from me, you pansy-ass coward. I'm gonna kick your ass. So they beat him up some more. And then they break his sword. And also the mysterious horse-insulting stranger steals the letter Dart's dad gave him for Monsieur Treville. In a furious rage, D'Artagnan rides off to Paris to find Treville and explain, and when he gets there, he sells his terrible garbage horse for money to rent a room. Excuse me, the horse whose honor you just got your shit kicked in trying to defend? You just sell it off? Yeah, make some money on his ass. I guess. Also, as he lays down in bed, he thinks to himself, yeah, today was a good day. That's our hero, folks. Know him and love him. Something we learn about this Treville character. I'm probably, it's probably like Treville. Monsieur Chevy, Chevy, I don't know. I'm gonna anglicize everything and fuck it up. So he's a pretty cool dude. He came to Paris as a dipshit farm boy, much like young D'Artagnan, and was good at sword fighting and being cool. And the king was like, hey, Treville, you're a rad swashbuckling dude who I know is loyal to me, which really is the most important part of this. Have your own personal army of fancy sword-wielding Frenchmen. And we'll call them the Musketeers, even though the focus really isn't on muskets at all, but who cares? Uh, the story takes place in 1625, so this is King Louis XIII, the historical actual king. So at this point in the story, he would be like 23 years old and barely older than, you know, old Dart himself. And probably D'Artagnan's age when he was like, hey, here, take this army, bruh. Anyway, Cardinal Richelieu, probably, uh, who was also a real historical dude and was in charge of Catholic church-related stuff and also the king's advisor, chief of stuff. If you want an easy shorthand, in the book, he's kind of basically like Jafar. Which is a shame, because according to my admittedly minimal research, it seems like he was the victim of some Macbeth-level character assassination in terms of the fictional dude versus the historical dude. The historical cardinal was, like, this sort of cunning, vaguely Machiavellian, genius, strategic man, but he was also, like, a patron of the arts and, you know, contributed all this stuff to France's development and things like that, and in the book he's kind of just like, <laughs> That's what they want you to think. He hated art. <laughs> hated it so much. He gave so much money to the arts. Yeah? Yeah. Good for him. I'm just saying. He it's... stole it back at night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the move. The Cardinal. Who, that's That's the noise a Cardinal makes, all right? Yeah. Um, who's, They're from St. Louis. He's like, hey, what? Like, why don't I get a cool swordsman army? Like, what the fuck? I'm basically the church and should def have an army? And they have a slap fight about it, but in the end, the king wins, and Treville and his swords dudes belong to King Louis, and the cardinal gets a shitty, not nearly as cool army instead. And anyway, it turns out that the musketeers are less an army and more a giant frat. They're always hammered, they're rowdy as all fuck, and they refuse to listen to anyone but Treville, who they all love and treat like he's the teen dad. He's Treville daddy. Musketeer daddy, perhaps. So when little country time baby D'Artagnan shows up at Treville's place and sees it crowded with like 50 dudes all drinking and screaming and sword fighting, he's intimidated. But he goes in, he finds a servant who goes to hunt down Treville for him, and, and Dart just kind of sits around listening to some musketeers hanging around and talking shit. 
One of them is a big dude, an extremely fancy getup, complete with a swishy cape, and he's like, Oh yes, I know this cape is super extra, but I just have all this inheritance money and nothing to spend it on. <laughs> and the other musketeers are like, Bullshit, Porthos. This is Porthos. Everyone knows you're poor and you get your money by being the cabana boy of a bunch of wealthy, ugly old ladies. So Porthos turns to his buddy, who happens to be Aramis, and is like, Come on, dude, back me up. And he does. And it shuts the other guys down, because unlike Porthos, they actually respect Aramis. Porthos says it's too bad Aramis never became a priest like he'd originally intended to, and Aramis is like, Shut up, dude. I'm gonna be a priest eventually. This musketeer thing is just like my gap year. Before we can learn more scintillating details about Aramis's religious studies and Porthos's old rich lady fucking, the servant returns to tell D'Artagnan that Monsieur Treville is ready for him. Except when Dart goes to see him, Treville isn't really ready at all because he's calling Aramis, Porthos, and a third dude named Athos into his quarters so he can scream at them. And like a dad who says he's not mad, but just disappointed, but is actually in fact super mad, he yells at them for having rowdy-ass street antics that turn into full-scale riots, and apparently they do this a lot. And it's really embarrassing, and making them look bad in comparison to the Cardinal's men. So apparently, like, the dashing, sexy, swashbuckling musketeers are just like the Delta frat from Animal House, which is a really dated reference. Do we have any other something more timely about like an embarrassing group of hard drinking party animal ding dongs? Van Wilder. Age newer. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bunch of Van Wilders with swords. Uh, American Pie. As he's yelling at them, he realizes that Athos isn't even there. Aramis and Porthos try to cover for him and they're like, uh, he's sick, it's fine, don't worry about it. And Javil's like, he got stabbed by one of the Cardinal's men, didn't he? And they're like, what? No, that's crazy. He's not stabbed. And then Athos walks in and he looks very pale and in pain because he totally got stabbed by one of the Cardinal's men during their stabby block party. And he's like, hey, I'm feeling awesome. And then he faints. Everyone freaks out and they call a doctor and everybody's moving around. And eventually they all hustle out of there because it's clear that he's going to be okay. And they leave. And it's just Treville and Dart alone together. And he's like, oh yeah, you were here too. Who are you? And Dart explains about his dad and his dreams of being a musketeer and getting in fights with people. And Treville's like, okay, cool, but you gotta go be a soldier for three years or whatever, bye. And Dart's bummed out because he thinks Treville would give him a free pass to Swordstown if he still had that letter from his dad that the stranger stole. The stranger who is right there! Yeah, really. D'Artagnan just sees him and takes off running, leaving Treville standing there like, uh, the, the fuck? As Dart attempts to chase the stranger down, he manages to slam bodily into Porthos, Aramis, and even Athos, who's already up and about again, somehow. All three of them challenge him to separate consecutive duels, and he loses track of the stranger. Of course, when he shows up to the first duel, all three of the musketeers are there, and they all fight about who gets to murder Dart first, although they feel bad for being branded as boy murderers. They're like, oh, if we kill you, we're just gonna be like, oh, we killed an innocent baby boy. Which, also, quick aside, the ages of our three musketeers are iffy at best. In a sequel that takes place 20 years later, Athos, at least, is explicitly stated as being in his late 40s. And we know he's the oldest of the gang by a couple years. And someone used this knowledge and a bunch of other dates and shit from this book and the ensuing sequels to do the research and math that I sure as hell can't be bothered with to determine that when Dart meets the gang, Aramis and Porthos are around 22 or 23, and Athos is 25. This just matters to me because while Dart is usually portrayed in the movies as like a wee teen, the big three are usually dudes in like their 30s or sometimes even 40s, just sort of past their prime legends, just barely tolerating this obnoxious sword-toting child. Whereas actually, they were all obnoxious children. 
Anyway, they don't get the chance to fight because the Cardinal's men show up and they're like, Hey, no dueling allowed! Stop! Or we'll duel you! Both the Musketeers and the Cardinal's men give Dart the opportunity to walk away from the fight because he's a kid, but if there's one single thing that we've learned about this guy, it's that he is 24-7 DTF. Down to fit fist fight. Down to fight. Down to fist. Down to fist 24-7. So they fight. And this time Dark or they, fist. <laughs> or they fist. Something happens. But this time Dark doesn't get his ass kicked. In well, fact, in the time of fisting. He holds his own <laughs> with the other musketeers. Also, Athos gets wounded again. Athos just doesn't seem very good at this. The Cardinals men give up, and the fight ends with the musketeers parading back to Treville's, yelling about how they whooped ass to anyone who will listen. And Dart feels like he's finally found his people. So Treville has to meet with the king about the whole situation, and in public the king is like, No! Bad! Control your wild and crazy sword boys! But in private, after Treville tells him that not only did the musketeers kick ass, they did it with one wounded dude and some random farm kid, and the king's like, Ha! Sweet! Fuck the cardinal, am I right? Pound it out, bro! He asks for more info on D'Artagnan, and is impressed at his sword fighting skills and wants to meet him, so they arrange for him and the three Frenchman amigos to be brought to the court. Meanwhile... On a Meanwhile, <laughs> on a different kind of court, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis They're are playing... They're beballing up. Well, they're playing tennis. Space Jam! <laughs> they're, they're playing tennis, not... which is honestly weird enough to try and like mentally reconcile with how I pictured 17th century Paris based on like movies I've seen and stuff. So were they playing on the clay courts? Maybe. At Roland Garros? Sure. That's the one place in France I know. Okay, that's more than I know. Yeah, well, I watch, I watch my boy, Raj. Watching him be people like Rafa. Go Raj. Team Raj. Team Raj. Team Hare. <laughs> Dirt tries to learn how to play, but he gets hit in the face and decides to stop because he wants to keep that moneymaker pretty for his meeting with the king. A guardsman, whose name is too French for me to even attempt, who's watching this is all like, ha, you're afraid of balls like some kind of dumb ball-fearing baby. Like your mom. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you could already guess what happens next. The other guy gets hit in the face with balls no that'd be funny <laughs> <laughs> no they have a sword fight because anytime anyone says a mean thing to him he's got his response is to stab them the guardsman gets hurt and runs away and of course dart chases him only to find that this dude is gone and gotten his buddies so dart yells for his new buddies who yell for even more buddies and oh look it's another crazed street brawl but the musketeers have to go call a timeout so that they can go see the king and the king as it turns out is not super into seeing them now he tells Treville that he's in a pissy mood because what's this about some musketeers getting into street fights again and also possibly setting a hotel on fire? Because they did that a little. And Treville's like, and just a little bit of fire. Tiny bit of fire. Then the king brings the musketeers to him and yells at them for just being rowdy sword boys. So far, the majority of this book has been dudes getting into awesome sword fights and then getting yelled at for getting into awesome sword fights. Anyway, despite this, the king is impressed that Dart, who he basically calls a tiny, squishable-cheeked baby, was able to beat the shit out of dudes much older, bigger, and better trained than him. And the king says, stop being bad, but then also gives them a bunch of gold and probably winks at them because really he's glad he can one-up the cardinal in this human dick-measuring contest they've got going on. Then we spend a very long time learning about Athos, Porthos, and Aramis's living situations and all of their individual servants, but that's not nearly as interesting as sword fighting, so we're just going to skip that. Dart basically becomes the mascot slash little brother of the three musketeers and is training as a cadet so that he can one day join their ranks. They spend all the gold the king gave them and become hard up for money when Dart's landlord comes to meet him, not about not paying the rent, 
even though he hasn't been paying you the pay rent. You pay the rent. You must pay the rent. You must Where pay the rent. Where is the rent? <laughs> you must. You must pay the rent. <laughs> yep, that's, that's what he did. No, he comes to him about something much more convoluted and confusing. So, are you paying attention? Yeah. The landlord's wife happens to be the official seamstress for the queen. And she's been kidnapped because the queen who was arranged, married to King Louis for politics reasons, is apparently... Political reasons, not politics reasons. Be political. Is apparently having a sexy affair with the Duke of Buckingham from England. And this pisses the cardinal off, not because of religious reasons, but because he wanted to bang the queen. But the queen's like, oh no, I'm not fucking Buckingham. But instead it's some kind of like plot going on and that someone is writing him letters that's not her and now someone else has kidnapped the queen's seamstress aka this landlord's wife to use as some kind of hostage pawn against her and like does anyone else smell burnt toast because i think i'm having a stroke did you get all that no that's what i thought here's the bit that matters dart's landlord tells him that if he helps recover his wife then not only will dart get a handsome reward he'll never have to pay rent again oh and also wouldn't you know it The description of the man who kidnapped the landlord's wife perfectly fits that mysterious stranger who beat the crap out of D'Artagnan that one time. Pretty good. Crazy. Oh, but there's more. Because they both turn, and who should they see watching them from across the street? Roger? Playing tennis? No. Playing tennis? No, not playing tennis. Tennis? It's the mysterious horse shamer. No, I thought it was going to be the horse again. <laughs> that would have been crazy. He ran it's- away. It was like homeward bound. <laughs> it's Dart's horse. Why did you leave me, D'Artagnan? Why did you throw me? <laughs> that would have been great and way more interesting. But no, it's it's the guy who made fun of his horse. And Dart immediately chases after him again and loses track of him. Even though he agrees with again. him at this point. I know. It's really dumb. After this, uh, Dart and the Musketeers get to work on figuring out how to rescue the Queen's seamstress because even though it will help her cheat on the King, it will also piss off the Cardinal, and ultimately that matters way more. Except they never actually get the chance to rescue her. The Landlord gets arrested for mysterious reasons, and the Cardinal's guards lie in wait in his apartment to ambush whoever comes looking for him, and that person happens to be his apparently not-kidnapped wife slash seamstress. Dart watches this happen and beats the hell out of the guards and saves her. The seamstress, whose name is Constance, by the way, tells him that she had escaped her captors and gone to tell her husband a secret, and Dart's like, what secret? And she's all coy, like, well, if I told you, it wouldn't be a secret. But Dart doesn't care, because she's pretty. Either way, they get out of there, and Dart hides Constance at Athos's house. He thinks more about how she's super hot, and, you know, chooses not to focus on the fact that she's also super married to his landlord. Then a bunch of confusing shit happens that I'm gonna try to distill here. Athos gets arrested, but Constance escapes, and then Dart, after trying to find Treville, bumps into Constance with Aramis, and he gets mad because he wants to do his sex on Constance, and now Aramis is with her, but wait a minute, that's not actually Aramis, it's just a dude who looks a lot like Aramis, and that dude is the Duke of Buckingham. Boom. I don't fucking know. Just go with it. So it turns out that Constance is in fact taking the Duke of Buckingham to the palace to secretly see the queen. And now that it's apparent that Constance ain't gonna bone down on him, D'Artagnan's just like, okay, all right, cool. And he lets him walk on. So then we get a chapter without Dart to try to explain everything. So the Duke and the Queen did, in fact, used to be a couple at some point. They were banging. And so even though the love letter she allegedly sent him was a trap by the Cardinal to lure him to England, 
Buckingham wanted to come anyway because he's horny for the queen. So Constance was supposed to make the arrangements to make this happen, but then she got kidnapped and now she's back. And so Buckingham and Constance sneak into the castle and he meets the queen and is all like, hey baby, I traveled in secret from England in a ridiculously convoluted plan because I miss you and you're pretty. And so the queen's like, dude, we ended this. France and England are like super duper enemies and also my husband is going to be pissed as fuck. I mean, even their princes are bald. We you're wouldn't really, have our leaders be You're really bald. hung up on this hair thing. Our, our leaders have the best hair, right? Only the best hair. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't elect bald leaders. The best hair. The greatest hair. Like, you know what? Nobody has hair like that. Current leader has hair. In fact, it's his number one feature. Now, where does it belong on him? <laughs> different question. Buckingham's response to this is, I will literally wage war with France and cause the death of thousands of people just so I can see you and your hot bod. And the queen's kind of into that. But, like, seriously, he needs to leave. So she gives him some of her jewelry as, like, a special token and sends him packing with Constance. Meanwhile, the cardinal's men interrogate Constance's husband about whatever the hell is going on with his wife, and Buckingham and the Queen and all that, and he's completely clueless and freaked out that he's going to be executed. Instead, he's hustled to the headquarters of Cardinal Richelieu. So, like, we finally actually see him. The cardinal is aware of this whole weird sex conspiracy thing and recruits Constance's husband to spy on her on pain of death so he can catch Buckingham and ruin the Queen all in one fell swoop. And then another man comes into the room, and we're told that this is the man who kidnapped Constance in the first place, and stole Dart's letter and beat him up and said mean things about his horse. Count Rochefort. Okay? That, he's, he's, that's his name. I'm waiting for Count Moulin He's Moulin just Rouge. a guy. Count, Count Moulin. No, that count's not in this. That, that takes place, like, in 1900 or 1899 or something. Huh. Not in the 1600s. How about Count Moulin? That's in China. Be a man. <laughs> you must go visit you the fuck queen them in secret. Bang them all. You're Lay gonna bang literally everyone. This <laughs> sex plot thing is so goddamn confusing. Like, what happened to my sword fights? Where are my crazy drunk street brawls? They're gone and replaced with a plot that's precipitated on who the queen happens to be fucking or not fucking or whatever. Pretty progressive. She's out to fuck whoever she wants, huh? Yeah, yeah, no, there's there's some progressive lady things going on here, and we'll talk about that. Dart finds Treville, and they get Athos out of prison, and the king is all mad because he doesn't know what the hell's going on, and the cardinal's mad because he didn't catch Buckingham, and I'm mad because I don't care about any of this. The cardinal pits the king and queen against each other by playing on the king's raging insecurity and jealousy, all like, hey, I heard Buckingham's in France for some reason, and the queen's sure been writing a lot of letters, but also I'm sure she's totally not making like a sexy human channel with him whenever your back is turned. In fact, you should stop being a wang and throw her a big fancy ball and make her wear the beautiful jewelry you gave her. You know, the jewelry she gave as a token to Buckingham. Buckingham. Whoops. <laughs> I mean, fucking ham is more accurate in this case. Hey, he's fucking hams. He's fucking like, those hams. Because he can't get to Queen Anne. He can't fuck Queen Anne, so he's fucking hams. He's got her jewelry. And that's the problem. The Cardinal keeps bringing up these special diamonds that the king gave the queen to the point where it's super obvious. And the king's finally like, I wonder if he's trying to make some kind of point about the diamonds. So he goes to see the queen and is like, hey, where are those diamonds at the ball for me, Kay? And she's like... are my sword boys where where have all the sword boys gone looking for horses 
<laughs> Looking for men who are mean to horses. Well, Constance goes to Dart, and she's like, look, dude, my queen is mad fucked in the bad way if she doesn't get those diamonds back. So how about you go on a crazy dangerous mission to go to England and give Buckingham this letter to get her diamonds back, and also I think you're cute. And so of course he agrees, and rushes to Treville to be like, hey, can I get a leave of absence to go on an absolutely insane mission to England to get some jewelry for the queen? And Treville's like, what the fuck? No! And Dart says, but it'll piss the cardinal off. And Treville's like, oh, well, go ahead then. But take Athos, Aramos, and Porthos with you so you don't die horribly. Dart doesn't do a fantastic job explaining what this mission is about exactly, but Constance gave him a lot of gold to give to them so they don't question it too much and off they go. It doesn't go well. Porthos gets in a bar fight and they have to leave him behind. And then some road workers get mud on Aramis's shoes and he gets mad and gets in a fight and they have to leave him behind. And then the owner of the hotel they were staying at accuses Athos of trying to pay for their room with fake money and orders for them to be arrested. And he's fighting off a bunch of guards yelling for Dart to run for it. And he does, and he manages to sneak aboard a ship bound for England and arrives in London all alone and not speaking English. This doesn't seem to be a problem though, as he is promptly delivered to Buckingham and gives him the letter from the queen explaining this whole diamond situation. Buckingham is shocked that Dart made it here without getting murdered by the Cardinal's men, and he's like, well, I had three idiots with swords to distract them. Buckingham goes to grab the diamonds to give them back, except... The horse shows back up the horse the <laughs> The horse took the diamonds as revenge. Yep. He's the real monster. He's, he's the real he's puppet the real. master here, not the Cardinal. Except the diamonds are missing. Whoops. And Buckingham's like, shit, I bet the Cardinal stole them. I was wearing them at like a different fancy ball. And one of his spies is a woman named Milady de Winter. And she was there and she probably snatched them right off me. So now what? The Duke of Buckingham has some fake ones whipped up because it's just that easy, I guess. Gives them to Dart and sends him back to France with a wink and a slap on the ass. Because he's not burdened with three fight-happy lunatics, he makes it back without incident. And now, the ball. The Cardinal is practically pissing himself with joy because the Queen is, of course, not wearing the diamonds. And he points this out to the King. He's like, hey, honey, where, uh, where are those diamonds I got you? She's like, oh, I, I, I forgot. I'll send someone to get them from my room. And the fake diamonds arrive just in time. The Cardinal looks like a dipshit and the day is saved, I suppose. Our heroes successfully helped the Queen keep fucking a dude that's not the King. But it's okay, because the Cardinal's mad. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... That's enough. This does sound like a book written by a dude who was having lots and lots of extramarital sex. Sex is good. (laughs) Then just don't be married. Don't, like, have to hurt someone. You could fuck a whole bunch of people and just not be married. Or you could fuck a whole bunch of people and be married, but be clear with your partner that you're both gonna go fuck a whole bunch of people. Either way, Constance takes Dart aside and tells him to go home and that there's going to be a letter there waiting for him. And there is, telling him to go to some pavilion thingy at 10 o'clock the next night. Dart is convinced that Constance is going to meet him there and they're going to have sex and get married and have a million babies. And he talks with Treville, who's like, um, what happened to your friends, dude? You know, the other musketeers, your buddies, one for all, etc. And Dart doesn't know. He has no fucking clue where they are, but who cares? Dart's young and in love and maybe going to finally have sex. He goes to the pavilion and waits, but shock, Constance doesn't show. Upon investigation, it turns out that she was kidnapped. Again. By Count Rochefort. Again. 
Treville warns Dart that they're probably coming for him next and he should take off. So he does, stopping at the inn where we last saw Porthos and he's still there and drunk and gambling and fighting anyone who comes near him and Dart's just like, wow, I do not have time for this shit and leaves him there. Then he makes it to the place where he last saw Aramis, who has recuperated from his injuries and in the process found God and is ready to be ordained as a priest. That was quick. And Dart's like, dude, like really? And he reminds Aramis of all the mad puss he was getting back in Paris for being a musketeer and like that. He's like, mm, yeah, no, sorry, God. But he's still kind of wounded. So Dart leaves him there and goes on to find Athos alone. Dart finally feels kind of worried about Athos and also guilty because while the other two fell behind by way of being dipshits, Athos was actively fighting off dudes and protecting D'Artagnan. So he really hopes Athos isn't dead. He reaches the inn, interrogates the innkeeper, who admits that it was all set up after all, and that Athos fought off the guards and barricaded himself in the wine cellar where he's been chilling for, like, a fucking week. Dark gets him out and is like, help me save Constance, and Athos, who's been hammered in a wine cellar for seven days, says, no, that's stupid, love is stupid, and proceeds to tell Dart the story of a, quote, friend of his who met this one awesome girl this one time, and they loved each other, and they got married. But then he saw that he, she had a, a fleur de lis brand on her shoulder, which is a brand that they give to thieves and criminals. And he was so upset that his wife was a secret criminal that he hung her from a tree. What the fuck? Don't hide that shit. What the fuck, Dumas? Daddy Dumas? Where the hell did that come from? Why did Athos, aka everyone's big brother, hang his wife from a fucking tree because she was maybe a thief once? Because that's bad. <laughs> Jesus. She tricked him. That's the worst sin of all. I guess. Yeah. Dart agrees with my sentiment, though. But the next morning, Athos doesn't remember anything because he was drunk as hell. Instead of trying to find Constance, they collect Porthos and Aramis and go back home, only to find out that they're going to war with England. And also, Dark gets to be a musketeer now. Yay! Musketeers. Then some stuff happens. The musketeers bitch about being broke again, and Dark discovers the identity of Milady de Winter and follows her in the hopes that maybe she knows where Constance is. Why not? He tries to be all sly and seduce her, but he's a dumb boy, and she's literally a spy for a living. And she seduces his dumb ass until he's like, Constance who? What? No, I don't... I don't know, Constance. Until finally one of Milady's servants, who is herself in love with Dart, tells him the truth, that he's being deceived and used. And he hides and overhears Milady basically saying so, and he vows revenge! So he pretends to be Milady's other lover. She's, she's got a few running around. Lord, Lord de Winter, her husband, died under mysterious circumstances, meaning that she totally killed his ass. So she's just got, like, all, all of the lovers. She's got the hoes in different area codes. So he pretends to be her lover, and he steals a ring from her, and shames her and stuff. And then he brings the ring back, and Athos sees it, and he's like, Hmm, that ring looks a lot like a family heirloom I used to have. Weird. I'm sure it's nothing. Milady learns she's been tricked, and now she vows revenge! And I'm just going to assume Constance has been dead for like a month now. Constant suffering. Well, no, I don't know if she's dead. Or she's off with the horse. Constance and the horse have adventures together running around the French countryside. Also, Dart still wants to bang Milady anyway, so that's like a weird thing. This goes on for way too long until she finally tries to stab murder him, and as they fight, he tears at her clothes and he sees a, a fleur-de-lis brand on her shoulder. Everybody got him. That, it's a hot new thing. Oh yeah, everybody's getting him. Anyway, nonetheless, Dart goes to Athos and is like, hey, remember how you, I mean, 
your friend hung his wife from a tree. Uh, are you super duper sure she's dead? But there's no time for a concrete answer to that question because they've been invited to see the Cardinal. Mandatorily invited. The Cardinal gets a dart alone and says he's impressed with him as he perfectly accounts D'Artagnan's past adventures and we get that old, join me instead and rule with the dark side. And Dart's like, no. And the Cardinal's actually kind of hurt. Like, like, Dart's rejection legitimately hurts his feelings. He, he feels very offended, and he's just like, Whatever, I never wanted you anyway. You suck, and you smell bad, and I'll probably kill you at some point. But whatever. It's time for war! You know, the war that's only happening, so that Buckingham, or Fuckingham, can look at the Queen and touch himself, and so the Cardinal can kill Buckingham for liking the Queen and touch himself. The King is involved in none of this. <laughs> So war happens for a while, Dart fights some dudes, Athos, Aramis, and Porthos might have died. Business as usual, really. The war's not going great for the Cardinal, so he summons Milady and tells her to go find Buckingham and tell him to call off the war or he'll ruin the Queen. Also, he gives her a royal decree to cause whatever mayhem and murder she might wish to inflict along the way, and she immediately is just like, Oh, I'm gonna super murder D'Artagnan, that little fucker. Except no. Because Athos finds her and, you guys aren't going to believe this, but she's totally Athos is not at all hung from a tree ex-wife. Crazy. And Athos is like, "What, what the hell? Like, what have you been doing? Stop trying to murder people. She's been living. She has. She's been living large. And she's like, well, what about murdering Buckingham? And Athos is like, yeah, all right, you can murder him. I don't care. And she presses her luck like, what about murdering D'Artagnan? But that's a hard no from Athos, and he pulls a gun on her. He puts it to her head, and he takes the royal decree from her before running off. She wants to tell the cardinal, but this would mean admitting that she fucked up real bad, so she doesn't. Athos finds Dart and fills him in, and D'Artagnan is scared of being murdered, but also doesn't really want fucking Ham murdered either. He's sympathetic to the plight of a man wanting to get his bone on. Who is it? Oh, Megan, that's right. (laughs) Fun police over here. Yeah, fun police. Yeah. Dirt wants to go to England and warn him, but that's straight treason. Porthos wants to strangle Milady to death, but that's lady murder, and that's bad. Unless you're hanging one from a tree. Do we ever get an explanation as to what the hell that's about? So you could be a wife murderer. <laughs> yeah. So instead, they send a secret letter to Buckingham, warning him of his impending murder, and a letter to Lord de Winter, Milady's brother-in-law, basically telling him that she's a criminal spy and had another husband before his brother, who's still running around and probably also murdered his brother. Fucking livid, he kidnaps her and holds her prisoner. Sucks to be Milady. Meanwhile, the Cardinal, not having heard anything about Buckingham or any news from Milady, is getting pretty nervous. But... Forget that, because we are about to get, like, ten fucking chapters of Milady slowly seducing the lackey guarding her, whose name is Felton, by pretending to be religious and pitiful and sad, and this slow-witted dipstick eats it up and falls in love with her, even as Lord de Winter's like, hey, guys, she's gonna try to trick you into falling in love with her. So don't. Doesn't work. No one can hear you shaking your head. <laughs> yeah, you shake your head real close to the microphone. <laughs> please, please. Oh, God. Okay, no. No. I agree. <laughs> hey, everybody. It's me, RJ. Is, is this ASMR Onola class? Maybe. If you're doing ASMR, you have to do it like this, and you have to hit all of your plosives really hard. Continue. So she almost has this idiot ready to help her escape and murder Buckingham to boot, when Lord De Winter shows up and is like, dude, seriously, you had one job. 
And so Milady pretends to commit suicide by dramatically stabbing herself and making everyone run for help. But she pretty much just kind of jammed the blade up into the underwire of her bra. Like, that's explicitly stated, and it's like, all right, cool. That's clever. Functional, yet practical. <laughs> In the confusion, Felton helps her escape, and she's like, sweet, now go murder Buckingham. And he's like, on it! I go for you, my love! And she's like, yep, cool, love you too, go do the murder now, please. Felton sneaks his way into Buckingham's castle and stabs the fuck out of him just as he's reading the letter that the musketeer sent him for extra irony points. As he dies, he thinks of the queen and how sad he is that he'll never get to put his wiener inside her again. Everyone freaks out, and Felton waits for Milady to show up and them to die romantically together, but she left for France over an hour and a half ago. Womp womp. That's a long fucking interlude just to kill the fucking duke. <laughs> but we're almost done, I swear. Milady returns to France, sending a note to the cardinal that Buckingham is super dead, and heads to a convent where, oh my fucking god, it turns out that's where Constance was hiding the whole fucking time. Hi, Constance! Milady's coming to kill your ass! But when she gets there, she pretends to be a sympathetic friend and says she knows D'Artagnan, and Constance is like, oh, neat! I got a letter from him that he's coming to rescue me! So that happened at some point. Just then, they hear a visitor enter the convent, but it's not Dart. It's... Richelieu. No, no, not the Cardinal Richelieu. He's too much of a little bitch to do anything on his own. He sends minions to do his dirty work. Banana? No, no, not those kind of minions. Banana? Not those kind of Banana? minions. Banana? Oh, Jesus. Banana? So wait, the minions came in? Now, which minion? See, because there's different minions, Meg. Okay. Yeah, you know, there's like the tall, thin one, the yeah. short, squat one, the, the ones one that wear pants, ones that don't. Some have I. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they all wear pants. Nah. God, I hope they wear pants. Nope. <laughs> do the minions have dicks? In my dreams. How did we end up here? Oh, you talked about the minions, oh, so the minions showed up. That's my... Yeah, okay, so one of Cardinal Richelieu's minions does Banana. does show up, but he's not that kind of minion. It's, it's Count Rochefort. It's Rochefort the, ho- the horse shamer. And, whoa, con- wait, whoa, and whoa, Constance's kidnapper. Minion? Count minion? Okay, Count minion. Him and Count daddy, they hang out a lot, you know? Oh, shit. What? There he oh, is. Yeah, that's Count, yeah, that's Count Minion. <laughs> Neat. Google Count Minion if you want to feel pain in every organ in your body. Wow, that's a jacked Minion, and that's a Minion ass. I see no pants. Whoa, whoa, was that Minion fellation? Oh, whoa! Those are Minions scissoring. Uh, here you go, Meg, I found No, it. stop showing me pictures of Minion coitus! Jesus! Continue. How the fuck do I come back from that? I've been mentally ruined for the rest of all time. I hope you haven't. Don't Google that. Don't Google minion sec whatever it was that you Googled. Don't look for minion porn because it's there. Just just trust me. Just take my word for it. It's there. Hmm. So Rochefort's coming to the convents. That's the guy who, who's done all the bad things, but you know, we've only talked to him once when he said that mean thing about Dart's horse. Rochefort tells Milady to kill Constance, and she's like, yeah, like I got that, don't worry. But she also really wants to get the fuck out of this convent before Dart and co. get there, so she's like, after I kill Constance, come pick me up at this village, and then he leaves. Milady spins some bullshit about who that was, and then she poisons Constance, who dies, just as Dart and the gang arrive to rescue her. And she dies in D'Artagnan's arms, and he's sad that he never got to put his wiener inside her. Along with Lord de Winter, they finally manage to hunt Milady down in some random village and corner her in a room and take her prisoner. 
They go with an executioner to a river, and things get pretty grim for Milady as she screams and cries and begs, like, don't kill her, and she loves Dart, and they all, literally all of these goddamn idiots get too sad about her dying, despite the fact that she's either straight murdered or been indirectly responsible for the murder of, like, at least six people at this point. They get too sad about her dying to go through with it, and they each pardon her for her crimes, paying the executioner to not go through with it. This fucking Stone Cold dude throws the money in the river and is like, fuck you guys, and kills her anyway. Hardcore, man. Hardcore shit. And everyone's sad, even though she was a legitimately terrible person. The Cardinal, at this point, realizing there's only one way he can kind of weasel out of all this double dealing is when the Musketeers come back. He's like, wow, D'Artagnan, good job. You're such a good Musketeer guy. Yeah. Chucks him on the shoulder and Dart's like, okay, cool. I'm glad I'm, I'm not going to die. And then the main plot ends. No, but really. We get a brief epilogue that the war ends about a year later, and Dart is a decorated musketeer, and Porthos retires to live with a sugar mama, and Aramis disappears to go be a priest somewhere, and Athos remains a musketeer until he inherits some land and is like, fuck this, I'm a gentry now. So that's anticlimactic. And I know what you're all wondering. What about fucking Rochefort? This Cardinal's lackey who beat up baby Dart so many, many, many chapters ago and has been this sort of shadowy, evil, kidnappy presence for the whole novel. What happens to him? We're told. That's crazy! Stop. And just a few lines that the two of them arrange a duel. And they duel for three times. And each one of them's a draw. And D'Artagnan's like, if we duel a fourth time, I'm probably gonna kill you, dude. And he's like, yeah... Probs, and then they hug, and then they're friends. To fuck. The end. That's it. That's how the Three Musketeers ends. Le Fiend. Le Fiend. What the hell? In the end, we're all friends. <laughs> French friends. Yep. So yeah, that's Three Musketeers. It's a lot more about fucking than it is about sword fighting. So Is that really that different? I guess not. In terms of adaptations... There's, there's like, 11 fucking billion. Like, don't don't make me do this. People have been adapting the Three Musketeers film for literally more than 100 years. There is more than a century's worth of Three Musketeer, like, just movies. Just film alone. I think the first one was in, like, 1911. And most of them are terrible because they truncate the hell out of the plot because you just ha- fucking have to out of, like, necessity. Ugh. And um, usually, like, Treville gets cut out. And uh, for all the movies that were made, like, more recently, from, like, the 80s and 90s on, it's that D'Artagnan shows up and the Musketeers have been disbanded. They just don't exist anymore and the Cardinal's gotten rid of them. It's kind of that adaptational decay that we've talked about in other episodes where each new movie version is just sort of taking the plot from the previous movie version rather than the book itself. Also, Rochefort usually bites it. He typically gets murdered. American cinema isn't down with this whole and then they became friends thing. So, yeah, there's lots of swashbuckling, lots of sex, lots of musketeers actually being dudes in their early 20s drinking and and just fucking around and being dumb while also carrying weapons like you do. So, let's not uh, waste any more time. RJ? Sup, you. You sweet, sweet thing. Okay. Um, the, the three musketeers. Something wrong, beautiful? Uh, g- good or bad? Is daddy making you uncomfortable? 
Yes, extremely. Why is that? What the voice are you putting on? Daddy voice. Do you think the book's good or bad? Good. Bad. I just like hearing you saying words. What happened? I'm doing what the sweet man, Alexander Daddy Dumas, do. Sup, baby? You trying to philander with your own fiancé? What you getting into later? <laughs> um, Maybe you know me. Yeah, I think so. I got a podcast. Yeah, you know, I might have heard of you. I think my favorite part of the book was all the love. Mm. See, a man like me, mm-hmm. I know some things. Sometimes I wonder. And when I read that book, some of that book was true deep, deep down in me. <laughs> and those parts <laughs> are the parts that you felt in you, baby. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Three Musketeers. If it wasn't for the novel, you probably wouldn't have the candy bar. I really like the candy bar. I like the candy bar so much, I kind of like the novel too. Now, Just by transitive value. <laughs> that's math for you. <laughs> Thought of plot that doesn't get carried over to a lot of the movies, it seems. Yeah, I, that, I that think, thing I just said. <laughs> I think it's time to get a good Three Musketeers movie. We're going to switch the script up here. Ah. Yeah. I believe there's a BBC TV series. I don't know if because it's a TV series they can actually do the plot or not. I have not watched it. Given Daddy Dumas' weight, I wonder, did he inspire the candy bar? Did the candy bar inspire him? Or kind of like the chicken and the egg thing. That doesn't make any sense at all. Same thing with the Monte Cristo sandwich. Just move on. It'll be a mystery for another episode. Hey! Megan. Yeah, sex RJ. (laughs) Just call me Daddy. Absolutely not. So, Megan. Mm-hmm. Three Musketeers. Yep. Much like the Three Amigos. Except French. Both romance languages, though. It's true. Rooted in Latin. And both dealt with horses. Or mules. Sombreros. There are no sombreros in the Three Musketeers. Good. Bad. Or Snickers. Yeah, there's a lot of plot in that book. And some of it I like. I like that lady characters are allowed to be sexy and, and have sex and, and just do, like, goofy stuff. And also that Milady is kind of, like, the big villain of the book. Because the Cardinal's there being, like, fucking Emperor Palpatine and not really doing a whole bunch of anything himself. Rochefort is a fucking non-event. Buckingham is kind of bad, I guess, because he did a war, but... Clearly, we're meant to be sympathetic to him, I guess. And we're meant to be a little bit sympathetic to Milady, but she is kind of out and out the villain. And it's cool to have a lady villain because there aren't a ton of those in that period of time, literature-wise, I would say. I'm kind of talking out of my ass on that one. I just can't think of one at the moment. Milady gets to be multidimensional and interesting and sexually dominating and... Every ladies. Three-dimensional to daddy. Four-dimensional, in fact. But then they also all kind of die, except for the queen. There's there's just a lot of it, though, and there's so much that I didn't even mention that's literally just Aramis, Porthos, and Athos fucking around being like, oh, we're broke again. What can we do to make money? I don't know. Let's gamble. Oh, we lost everything gambling. Porthos, go fuck an old lady. Athos is good drink, you'd be sad. And Aramis is gonna go secretly fuck a woman and think about God. I mean, there's just a lot of that. And like I said, when you think about it in the context of a serial, then it makes a little more sense. But 
reading it all in one straight through shot as a novel can be kind of exhausting. But there's also lots of really cool sword fights and action and intrigue and fucking. So, you know, that part's cool. If you gotta read that in school, at least there's some fucking and some fighting. You can't do too much better than that. So, good, good enough. How do you feel about that version we watched from 2011? <laughs> Where Orlando Bloom is Buckingham and Mila Jovovich is Milady. Wasn't and very good. They ride around in airships and it's not good, so not good, fucking not good. bad. It's so terrible. And that'll about do it for us on this episode of Ono Lit Class. If you like the show and you want to show us support, uh, leave us ratings and reviews on iTunes. Subscribe. Check out a store at tpublic.com slash braintrustbros. And buy some shirts, some mugs, some tote bags, some iPhone cases. Whatever the hell your weird little heart desires. We got, I think, like four or five designs in there. And we're making more soon. And you can also check out some sweet swag of the other shows on the Brain Trust Brothers Network. Including Field of Screams and Play Comics. Please buy stuff. Also, our Patreon's about to go up, and that's going to be freaking cool. Patreon, that's going to have all kinds of, like, dope-ass exclusive goodies. Yeah. This week's pod pals are Morgan and Brent on the Frankenpod. There is no reason to say that like Dracula. I don't know how to say it like Frankenstein. Anyway, the Frankenpod is a cool sort of exploration of the pathway through, like, gothic literature and film to sort of like a present day noir situation and they talk about the the genesis of things like Frankenstein and Oscar Wilde and picture Dorian Gray and they watch some movies and do all kinds of just like cool analysis stuff in their delightful Aussie voices out out in the outback somewhere presumably. It all starts with Frankenstein. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, which uses the Promethean myth, which her husband Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote about, and they were both friends with Lord Byron, who kept a bear at Cambridge. It was the key shape of the Romantic movement, which Oscar Wilde would be at the tail end of when he wrote Dorian Gray. He was influenced by a Yellow Book, which inspired the publication of a magazine called the Yellow Book, which specialised in lustful and violent tales, in which John Buchan was published, according to Betjeman, who wrote about Wilde's arrest. And Buchan wrote The Thirty Nine Steps, which later became a Hitchcock film, before he made Psycho, which was based on Ed Gein, who made corpses into ornaments, unlike Victor Frankenstein, who made a man by grave digging and stitching corpses together. You done? Not even slightly. The Frankenpod, it's a podcast stitched together from the corpses of mystery, noir, gothic literature and cinema. Subscribe to us on your podcast app. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod. You can like us on Facebook. You can join the Facebook group. There's like people in there now and they're posting things and it's great. It gives me a, a warm, fuzzy feeling inside that might be like a tapeworm, but is probably joy. You can listen to us on every app ever, forever at onolitclass.com, at braintrustbros.com and in your heart where we've always been. And we always believed in you. Right, RJ? Yep. The next episode will be March 15th. Until then, I'm Megan. What's mine? I hate you. I hate you. I'm RJ. No, I'm RJ. We love you. I'm RJ. <laughs> we love you. Bye. We, we love you. Bye. Require you to be at a 45 degree angle. You put your cards right.
You oh, got God. this view of me all night long. <laughs> Straight on. <laughs> yep. At a 45 degree angle. <laughs> oh, no. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit braintrustbros.com.